Hi, everyone. You're listening to a brand new podcast called Growing Up. I'm Alison Koff. I'm the founder and CEO of Agrilist. We're a software company using data to automate indoor farming processes. Along the way, I get to meet incredible farmers doing some pretty amazing things. So I started this podcast to share their stories. If you're interested in learning about the world of indoor farming and the people who are in the thick of it, keep on listening. To kick things off, we're going to dive into the nonprofit side of indoor farming. This is the first episode of Growing Up where I learn about sweet potatoes and how kids are picky eaters, among other things, from Harrison Hillier, who's the hydroponics manager at Teens for Food Justice here in New York. Well, I do a little bit of everything. So I do everything from system design to farm layout. Um, I draft budgets for those farms. And then I also develop like the farming standard operating procedures. So how we plant seeds, how we mix nutrients, how we clean the farms. Um, I'm a jack of all trades in that sense. So what is Teens for Food Justice? It's a socially oriented nonprofit that builds hydroponic indoor vertical farms uh, in food desert communities. So communities where they don't have adequate access to what you would consider healthy, unprocessed foods. And uh, we use that as a platform for a curriculum that we've developed that's about nutrition, uh, food advocacy, so food security, uh, food justice, um, as well as a, a STEM aspect, so a little bit of agriculture and chemistry and uh, awesome. biology. Yeah. <laughs> and how does it so? How does it all work? Like when you find how do how do you get started with a with a greenhouse? How do you where are you located? How do you build the curriculum? Tell me about the whole sort of shebang. Okay, so I guess the best place to start is that it's a very collaborative process. Uh, we reach out to different schools or we're found through word of mouth. Uh, representative schools will find us through people that we have brought out to the farm. So our farm is in Bedsty uh, on the third floor of 56, which has an urban assembly unison school that occupies the top floor. Uh, and the rest of the school falls under uh, under PS56, although we work directly with Urban Assembly Unison. So it's a really cool space. Um, it's a farm, but it's not designed for maximum yield. Uh, we like to call it our experiential learning farm. So we're not trying to squeeze every bit of yield out of every cubic foot in the room. We've reserved some space uh, for classroom space. There's tables and chairs for the students to sit and be taught lessons, and uh, we give them a snack every day, um, or at least for our after school in their extended learning day program. So the space has really become like this shining gem, or at least a really cool space that the school likes to show off to pretty much whomever would like to see it, as we do maintain an open door policy so that the school community knows that this is actually part of their community and not this cordoned off area they're not allowed in. So when people hear that there's a farm in a middle school in Brooklyn on the third floor of a building, initially they're skeptical and they don't really know what to expect. And then uh, when they come up, 
I get to guide them into the room and open the door. And, and my favorite part is I say, welcome to the farm. And then they have like this wow moment, which I never get tired of. And they get to see that we're growing a lot of plants inside, you know, away from nature and that the students are getting this really awesome opportunity. This is one of my favorite things Harrison's about to talk about. With a lot of hype in this industry, it's really hard for people to understand what's actually happening in these indoor farms and then to look at, you know, nonprofit and commercial and what the differences are between each. I think people, when they hear the word farm and indoors, they, they kind of naturally put air quotes around it in their mind where it's like, this is our farm. And then really it's like a hydroponic classroom that grows a couple of plants at a time. And it's, it's really just kind of like a hobby system. So it's a quote unquote farm. They're just being cute when they, when they use that, but we build farming equipment. And so when they come in and they see there's, you know, multiple hundred heads of lettuce and, you know, tomato plants that are, you know, in full, fruit and they're like 20 feet long and cucumbers and there's they're kind of wowed by that so once someone has that experience they uh they usually are very they're energized and they want to reach out to other schools and bring it to other locations where they know people and so when we get partnered with the space or rather when we're looped together with a space and we haven't really formed a partnership yet um we identify available space in the school and we assess that space as to whether or not we could actually build a farm in there because there's certain electrical needs and there's certain plumbing needs. Um, and then once we found a suitable site for the farm, the other two components we need for it to be successful are an adequate funding source and staff uh, to help run both the farm and the curricular side of our program. And do those teachers have to be trained in hydroponics? Like, how do they turn around and <laughs> run a commercial? I mean, these aren't small farms, right? They're, I mean, they're, they're, no. you know, they're pretty large. So, like I said, we provide technical staff, and we also train uh, the teachers enough to uh, know to know enough about hydroponics that they can teach it to the students. Uh, but we find the farm managers, our technical staff, through various staffing programs. Uh, it's the, the farm manager's job to take care of the plants, to manage the crop cycling from seed to harvest, as well as to manage the students who will be working and learning in the farm, as well as the logistics of taking the harvested produce to where it's going to be consumed, if that's in the cafeteria, if that's in the farm, a farmer's market, or at a community event we're hosting. So I guess the farmer we provide, uh, and we also will work with the curricular teacher uh, and by providing a curriculum that will teach them about hydroponics. So usually they're a science teacher. That's been the most successful, but they don't necessarily have to be. We've also had instances where they have not had a science background. And how old are the kids that are going through this curriculum, this program? So right now we're in a middle school, so that's, it's open to 6th, 7th, and 8th graders, and our next farms are planned to be in two high schools, one in the Bronx and then one in Manhattan near the Lincoln Center. So we're shifting from 
we're not from, but so we're broadening is a better way to say it, from 6th to 8th to 6th to 12th grade. The curriculum that we have designed is modular in nature, where different groups of students are exposed to different modules of lessons, each focused in a single subject area, and each about spanning five weeks. Uh, so we have one group of students that has a module of hydroponics, and then a module of nutrition and fitness, and a module of food security. As we expand into high schools, the framework will remain, but the students will be able to dive deeper into the subject matter. From a middle school standpoint, uh, their favorite activity, I think, was some of the food advocacy, because we went around the neighborhood in, uh, it's at Gates and Irving, so it's right off the Clinton-Washington uh, uh, subway stop on the sea line. And so that was very hands-on. And then they really liked the cooking and um, all the things that we would bring in uh, local local chefs or uh, and and they would do cooking demos with the food that the kids were watching grow. I think they really enjoyed that the best. One of the things that we found. Um, was that kids have a very vocal aversion to new foods. It doesn't matter what it is. It, it could be the most delicious thing on earth. The first thing they are going to tell you is that this is disgusting, this is nasty, this is not food, and they're almost upset at you for trying to get them to eat it. Like you would bring them something that's like, surprise, it's not food, it's just, I don't know, sand. And... <laughs> I, like I really I don't know it's because it it looks delicious you know we're using Swiss chard that we just harvested that day and um, I feel like that's almost that that is a very innate human thing to be like I don't know if this is actually safe to eat because it's so far out of my realm of experience that it could be poisonous I don't know so I'm just gonna assume it's disgusting and not eat it and then just go with what I know to to be quote unquote safe and unfortunately safe has become, you know, fast foods or dollar slice right. pizza or, you know, uh, the, the, my, my, the food that I love to hate, uh, dollar cheeseburgers from Mickey D's. <laughs> Do you find that when kids, I mean, they're, you can literally pick the food that they, you've spent time growing, you seeded this plant, you picked the plant, you know, you tended to it while it was growing, you pick it and then you're eating it. And they still have this aversion to, to new varieties? Yeah. Wow. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, it's crazy. They can put the seed into the, the rock wall, um, and they can put it into the system, and they can come in several times a week and watch it grow, but then you have them pick it and tell them, eat it, and they're like, no. Like, it, it's there's, like, this perceptual disparity. It's food right up until you tell me to eat it and then now it's not food because I don't know so wow. it, it's curious and frustrating um, we work with uh, George Edwards from uh, Garden to Cafe who's a great guy he's working he's doing a lot of really important work on bringing um, uh, high quality food into cafeterias uh, he advocates for um, scratch kitchens as opposed to uh, preheated meals and and he says he, he agrees completely 
or at least this is, this is I've heard him say the same thing, that it's the, this is nasty. And, uh, you know, he said he also had this learning curve of don't get offended at them. This is like an innate reaction. Mm. Engage them. Ask them, why is this nasty? And, uh, and, and then if you can just get them to try a little bit or make some alteration to it because sometimes it is, it's not that it's nasty, but it's like an odd texture or an odd right. smell. It looks different. And then once you overcome that, exactly. I think that's really what they're saying is not that this is nasty, it's that this is different and I'm not sure and so I'm just going to dismiss it. So perception is a huge challenge with ag- like agriculture in general, mm-hmm. not just with middle schoolers, but even with full-grown adults, if you can convince someone that one, like, so um, a few years ago, organic hit the scene in a big way, or rather I became aware of it in a big way, and it seemed to me that uh, people were very willing to accept the fact that organic is innately more nutritious. And that, and what we were seeing is that people would be willing to spend more money on organic food that they really couldn't afford. And so, instead of a, a, a you know, an apple, just a, an apple grown with traditional methods, um, a non-organic apple, they would choose to spend two to three times as much on an organic apple, and then they would have to make up the difference in calories with less money, which means that they're going and buying dollar cheeseburgers. And so there was this perception that, well, this is an organic apple, so it's got to be better for me. So it's okay that I then eat this cheeseburger when the reality is, is that they really couldn't afford organic. uh, And if they had just eaten the non-organic apples, they would have had a better diet and it would have been better for them. But perception was such that, you know, they didn't do that and and that's still very prevalent in on all tiers of agriculture mm-hmm. um i was at a conference uh gosh i can't remember the name of the conference i was it was in manhattan and there was a lot of big agribusiness there uh dupont was there Dow chemicals was there so big agro was there and they're fighting the same thing that people are are, have this perception of big agra being innately bad for the environment or innately evil. bad, uh, yeah, being evil, and so they don't buy the product. And these are multi-million, perhaps multi-billion-dollar companies that have the money to spend on marketing, and still their biggest obstacle is perception. So let's dig into that a little bit because one of the, the more interesting things that's going on in the industry right now actually i think is tied to um labeling right is tied to this organic argument um and and we're in the world of hydroponics and aquaponics and aeroponics and um and indoor growing and there's a debate in the industry right now over whether that should be or can be considered organic in general yeah in some ways it makes a lot of sense uh the hydroponics that we use is all synthetic fertilizer. We use rockwell as our substrate. And so when people ask us, is this organic? I have to tell them, no, it's not organic. Uh, we don't use fungicides or pesticides or neonicotinoids, and we don't 
have to do deal with any of the worst parts of growing outside. And yet us not being organic makes sense because of the synthetic fertilizers. Uh, we don't use compost. And so rightfully it's not organic, but you do have systems that are being developed that are soilless, but use things like liquid fertilizer, uh, such as renewable, which is made from upcycled food waste. Uh, and they also cannot be considered organic. And that doesn't make any sense to me because it seems to me like if you're taking the best of both worlds, meaning you're growing in an environment where the pest load is low, so you don't need to use harsh pesticides or chemicals, and you're using an organic matter as your fertilizer source, then that's organic. And to say it isn't is, in my opinion, either being driven by an overprotection of the organic certification so that you can charge more for your crops, or you're indulging in a semantic argument, and that's the lowest form of argument, I mean, if we're going to, in, in my opinion. Yeah, yeah. Um, let's take it back a notch. Um, how did you get to here? Like, how did you get to Deans for Food Justice? What's your background? How did you get into hydroponics? Sure. So I'm from Maryland originally, um, and I went to... I went to the University of Maryland Eastern Shore, which is um, the HBCU sister school of University of Maryland College Park. And so they're a land-grant agricultural school that's out on the far side of the Chesapeake Bay. And I studied uh, my degrees in general agriculture, and I focused in plant and soil science. Hmm. And I got into hydroponics. Actually, I got into aquaponics at first because I was living off campus at the time and uh, it's very rural uh, in, in that part of Maryland. Um, so I could not, I didn't have like a place to go in between classes. Like I just had to stay on campus the whole day. I couldn't shoot back to the dorm room and you know, like take a nap for an hour or two in between classes. Um, so when I got a job on campus, I was working in one of their greenhouses that was running soil experiments. And I noticed that they had all of these parts and pieces laying around, just kind of, you know, collecting dust, caked in the corners. And apparently what had happened is there had been an aquaculture lab there uh, some number of years before I got there. And they just never bothered to clean up anything. Mm -hmm. So I made an aquaponic system out of all of this found material. I had never I had never dabbled in hydroponics before. I went online and got like a very rudimentary drawing so that I could understand how the concept works, you know, <laughs> reservoir, plants, fish, and then I just started building. And it was it was kind of my happy place on campus. I uh, I would go there when I was feeling too stressed out or, you know, when I had downtime between classes. And um, then uh, then school was starting to wind down. My bachelor's was wrapping up and I wasn't ready to join the real world or the workforce yet. And um, so I got, I got very enamored of the idea of plant breeding, mm. that you could take a plant population and you could, you know, through careful selection, really turn it into something wild and unexpected. And uh, I, what I wanted to do 
was grow sunflowers that would be adept at taking up radioactive isotopes out of groundwater because Fukushima had just happened. Um, and the tsunami had, you know, damaged the nuclear reactor and there was just gallons and gallons of radioactive water uh, flooding the surrounding area. And I had heard that there were these, um, well, I think they were elderly there's a population of elderly people and also monks who were planting sunflowers there to try and fix the soil because they're hyperaccumulators. So they'll take up any old thing regardless of their nutritional needs or anything. You know, they'll just eat and eat and eat and they will deposit it in their petals. And so I thought that would be really cool. You know, use a biological means to strip the toxin out of the soil and then uh, I hadn't really gotten further than that. I guess you could encase it in concrete or glass or, or something. I don't know. Um, so I went to North Carolina State. I got into their plant breeding program with uh, Dr. Craig Yencho and Ken Pakoda. Uh, and and they're, it, they're really, they're kind of rock stars of the plant breeding world. You know, they're at a major university. They're well-funded. Uh, you know, they're working with um, the sweet potato, which is a major staple crop in lots of developing or underdeveloped countries because it doesn't require irrigation or fertilizer, and you can still get good sweet potatoes. It's a really, it's a hell of a plant. Um, and while I valued my time there, it just wasn't a good fit for me. And so I decided that I was going to move up to New York City and get into the urban agriculture scene that it, I remembered how happy I had been building systems. And so I figured I needed to go to a major metropolitan area because, um, well, I guess it, it made sense at the time. I don't see why I would necessarily be this way now. I could have gone to a suburban area or someplace where land is cheaper, but I just figured New York would be a good place to go. <laughs> I didn't. And, uh, I don't think I knew any of that about you, Harrison. <laughs> well, you know, um, uh, yeah, it's weird, right? A lot of people kind of look at me sideways when I say that I moved directly from the middle. Well, not the middle of nowhere. Raleigh is not the middle of nowhere. No. You know, you have Raleigh, Durham, and Asheville, but the research stations are in the middle of nowhere. Yeah, yeah. And uh, directly to probably one of the most populated places on earth to be a farmer and uh, so I uh, ended up linking up with Grow NYC and I helped them uh, with their final stage of putting together they Grow NYC was out at Governor's Island building a potato farm for JetBlue that they installed at Terminal 5 and JFK and uh and so why did JetBlue need a potato farm? Um, so they were growing blue potatoes uh, because they're JetBlue, and they were going to harvest them, chip them, and serve them to their passengers. And I think it was also it was part uh, beautification, part marketing stunt, and. Um, Ultimately, I got to. I met Ray Poltinas. There was a uh, a teaching event 
out there. And I just showed up and started talking a, a lot of shop about hydroponics. And Ray put me in touch with, uh, put me in the same room with Kathy Soul, who is the founder CEO of Teens for Food Justice. And I started as a volunteer and then got brought on board as the in-house hydroponics manager. I love that story. I love that JetBlue has potatoes. And I love that your story is all-encompassing with a potato. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was, um, it was, it was really cool. Like sweet potatoes pop up in my life every so often, oddly enough. So I got to go to New Zealand a few years ago, and uh, and their one of their like uh, one of their indigenous people, the Maori's um, sacred crops is the kumara, which is the sweet potato. It's the same, it's the same line, because you know the Polynesians. Uh, are island hoppers and so they needed food that stored well and sweet potatoes store really well mm -hmm. and uh, so I actually have a tattoo that has sweet potatoes in it huh yeah and that was before that was like 2011 so that was before any of working in the sweet potato program or any of that <laughs> there's um, there's a company called tater tats that makes temporary tattoos that are in the shape of food, and I have a sweet potato temporary tattoo, so maybe one day we'll, uh, we can match tattoos. Before we wrap up this episode of Growing Up, I wanted to bring to everybody's attention a really cool week of events that's coming up in September. The New York City Agriculture Technology Collective is hosting their third annual Ag Tech Week from September 16th to the 21st at locations all around the city, and Harrison happens to be the chairman of the group. Also involved with, uh, I'm the chairperson of the New York Agriculture Collective, which is a, a small group, uh, well, a, a relatively small group of various entrepreneurs, um, all in different portions of the urban ag sector. And every week, or every week, every year, we put on what's called Ag Tech Week, where we give tours of various farms. Um, we're doing workshops and um uh, a sort of an uh, ag tech demo day at Project Farmhouse, uh, which is near Union Square in Manhattan. And uh, there's a locavore feast. So it's a, a dinner of all locally grown uh, produce. And um, yeah, so that's coming up in September. For more information on the collective, you can go to www.farming.nyc. You can also use the hashtag NYC Ag Tech Week on social media. All right, everyone, that brings us to the end of our episode. If you're interested in learning more about Teens for Food Justice, you can head over to their website at www.teensforfoodjustice.org. Teens for Food Justice is a nonprofit, so if you're interested in donating to the organization, you can do that on their website as well. Thank you so much to Harrison Hillier for joining me for our first episode ever. This has been episode one of Growing Up. If you have any questions or topics you'd like me to cover on a future episode, let me know. Thank you so much for listening. This is Allison. Until next time.